Hello class and welcome to session four of our history of Christianity or church history class. And in last session, we looked at some factors that were important in the Protestant Reformation. We looked at the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. We looked at the differences between Calvinism and Arminianism. And in this session, we're really going to look at a broad period Your um, textbook and the online component calls it the Enlightenment. And so really what I want to do is is set the stage for where we're going in this session because what the Protestant Reformation did is it, it, how it ended, it, it ended in clear boundary lines between competing orthodoxies. You had three main outcomes or three main groups that emerged from the Protestant Reformation. Obviously, the Roman Catholic Church was one of them. Then there was the Lutheran Church, and then there was the Reformed Church. And there were endless debates and wars on both sides that was really tearing Europe apart. Uh, Basically, towards the end of this period, the Thirty Years' War, from 1618 to 1648, uh, mainly in Germany, but in other parts of Europe, was really the ending of the Protestant Reformation period. Uh, We also see in France that it was beginning to abandon its policies of quote-unquote tolerating Protestants. And then you had the Puritan Revolution in England that brought civil war there. And so really from the Reformation, Reformation emerged major confessions of faith. Uh, the major confessions of faith among these three groups that clearly defined and defended um, each, each group's key doctrinal beliefs. Uh, the biggest one from the Roman Catholic Church was the Council of Trent in 1545. Uh, this was the great outcome from the Roman Catholic side of the, of the, of the issue in the Protestant Reformation as a, a response to the Protestant Reformation. Uh, what the Council of Trent did is it promoted Thomas Aquinas as the key theologian for Catholicism. It established that the Latin Vulgate of the Bible is the authoritative uh, scriptures and matters of dogma. One of the amazing things that the Council of Trent did was it elevated tradition as an authority parallel to that of scripture. Remember the argument last time of sola scriptura. Uh, The Council of Trent said, no, it's not sola scripture. It's not scripture alone. Tradition has an authority parallel to that of scripture. Um, It established the seven sacraments. It gave a full understanding of the Eucharist or the Mass. And here's another important thing that the Council of Trent did in direct response to the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. The Council of Trent said that justification is not based upon faith alone through grace alone, but instead justification is based on good works through the sacraments. As a matter of fact, they said it was anathema. They said that it was a a heresy, if you will, to say that justification is by faith alone through grace alone. And so really the Council of Trent in 1545 marked the birth of the modern Catholic Church that we see today. So that was the Catholic response. Well, let's talk about the Lutheran response. It was the formula of Concord. In 1577, this solidified Orthodox Lutheranism. Um, It was really probably more akin to Melanchthon's method than to Luther's. Um, It established the Protestant scholasticism of Orthodox Lutheranism. And one of the great things about the formula of Concord is it really helped clarify the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture, that whole idea of Scripture alone. Uh, It helped confessionalism become more rigid. Now, because these battles had been waged, Lutheranism became more rigid and established itself separately from Catholicism and from the Reformed or Calvinistic view. And then the, the third stream would be what we would call the Reformed the Reformed response. Uh, You had two major responses. Uh, You had the Synod of Dort. We talked about this last time. Uh, The the Synod of Dort uh, uh, convened in 1618 and 1619 with 70 Dutch representatives and then 27 from other parts of Europe to come to answer the Remonstrants, the group from the Arminian party who argued for the five points of Arminianism. And so the Synod of Dort really established the five 
points of Calvinism in the Dutch church, but also in England and in Scotland. You had the very important Westminster Confession. If you remember from your reading, there was the Long Parliament. And in 1641, 121 pastors and 30 laymen and eight representatives from Scotland came together to draft the Westminster Confession, which has become the definitive confession today of faith for um, English, Scottish, and American Presbyterians, Calvinistic Presbyterians. And so you've got the Catholic response in the Council of Trent. You've got the Lutheran response in the Formula of Concord. And then you have the Calvinistic response in the Dutch church with the Synod of Dort, in the English and Scottish church with the Westminster Confession. And so really, by the, 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 the dawn of the 1600s, you have clear lines being drawn between these major groups. And so the spirit in Europe is becoming a little unsettled with the rigidity and the dogmatism of these creeds. And so there is a reaction. What happens is there becomes a a reaction really to the Protestant Reformation, which is kind of tragic because the Protestant Reformation was a revival. It was an important recovery of the gospel. But what we see next is, is a reaction to that. We see some liberal shifts. We see some, some weird things. I, I think as we look at these reactions, we'll see some good things about them. We'll see some negative things about them. But really, these launch the trajectory to really launch into the modern age. So the Enlightenment is kind of the bridge between the Protestant Reformation and the modern age. And so what we see, we see four major reactions to the Protestant Reformation that come in this whole Enlightenment movement. These four are rationalism, number one. Number two, uh, spiritualism or mysticism, whichever way you want to call it. Number three, pietism. And number four, liberalism. So in this session, we're going to explore these four reactions and the major figures, the major personalities that were instrumental in these for reactions. So let's first of all look at rationalism. Rationalism. Now, one of the, the famous pioneers of this was Rene Descartes. You probably remember his famous saying, I think, therefore I am. And his argument for the existence of God dated from 1642, and it was very similar to that of Anselm. If you remember, the Anselm's argument was that God is a supremely perfect being and that God is the first and supreme being. It's the ontological argument of God that he was, he was if you can think far enough back in history or far enough back in eternity, you come to the prime mover or the first being, and that is God. And so Rene Descartes' idea is that the reason that he thinks and the reason that he is is because ultimately there was a supreme being that was there first and that this supreme being can be conceived of, and that is God. So you got the Descartes, um, the Cartesian view of, of reality. Then you have John Locke. John Locke was a pioneer in what we would call empiricism. Um, he had an essay concerning human understanding in 1689. And basically, Locke argues the notion that God is derived from experience. The human mind constructs the idea of God by extrapolating ideas already present in the world to infinity, thus leading to the idea that God is a supreme being. And so the idea that God exists results from experience rather than from pure reason. Okay? Descartes would say the reason that we can believe in God is because of pure reason. We can think it through, we can reason it through, it is reasonable. John Locke comes alongside and says, no, there's, there's empirical evidence out there. We can see it, we can experience it, and from that we can deduce that God exists, not just from pure reason, but from experience. And then you have another figure, David Hume probably one of the most important philosophers in England of all time, uh, 1711 to 1776. Um, His major philosophical works include A Treatise of Human Nature, The Inquiries Concerning Human Understanding, and Concerning the Principles of Morals. Now, a lot of his contemporaries uh, got on to him as basically being an atheist, but his influence is very, very powerful today. 
especially um, some of his economic writings, influenced his fr- close friend Adam Smith. Um, Hume was very instrumental in Immanuel Kant's philosophy. We'll talk about Immanuel Kant a little bit later on. Charles Darwin counted Hume as a central influence in his thinking. Today, philosophers recognize Hume as the precursor of contemporary cognitive science, as well as one of the most thoroughgoing experts on philosophical naturalism. So this whole age of science, age of of reason, the the enlightenment, we're starting to to see this uh, have effect in the world of Christianity with Rene Descartes, with John Locke, and with David Hume. And so rationalism becomes a response or reaction to the Protestant Reformation. It's basically saying, we don't like the dogmatism of these confessions and creeds. What we need to do is to try to understand God, understand the Christian life, more from a rationalistic, reasoned, scientific type of approach. Now, on the other extreme to that, the, the second issue that was a reaction is spiritualism or mysticism. It's the exact opposite extreme. The, the rationalistic extreme is let's just totally use science and reason. The other extreme is let's just throw all that out the window and let's become mystical or spiritual. And that's where uh, George Fox, the founder of the Quakers, comes in. Uh, they did not like the rigid dogmatism of Lutheranism of the Reformed confessions. And so they wanted to abandon a lot of the theology and really focus more on the spiritual experience, this inner peace, uh, this, this type of inner light. Uh, it, was, it was quite dangerous in, in effect because really what they were doing in this spiritual mystical movement with the Quakers is that they were uh, doing a full-out assault on sola scriptura. They were quickly abandoning Scripture alone. They were saying, you know, yeah, the Bible's important, but what really matters is the internal experience, what you experience internally. As a matter of fact, George Fox and the Quakers really had a problem with a lot of the things that, that we see in church today. Uh, they didn't believe pastors should be, pray, should be paid, paid pastors. They had this idea that every Christian had this inner light within them. They could all gather together and everyone could decipher what the Spirit was saying to the group. And so things like singing hymns, having an order of worship or a liturgy, actually celebrating the sacraments, adhering to creeds and confessions, and having a pastor, what they said was that all of those are human hindrances to the freedom of the Spirit. Now, think of all the the things that were fought over during the Protestant Reformation. What were the big issues? Well, the nature of Scripture, Scripture alone. The the debates and arguments about the the sacraments. Is it transubstantiation? Is it consubstantiation? Luther's view, Zwingli's view, Calvin's view, all these different things. And what they're saying is we're just going to abandon all of that and let's just have this inner light. Now, this inner light was not what the rationalist or the empiricist would view as as natural reason, but what they thought was, the the Quakers and the mystics, was that this is some type of innate ability that we have within us to to recognize the presence of God. Now, now the theological, biblical problem with this, as you can see with the five solas, or or even going back to just, just the basic Bible, is that human beings are born sinful. We're born in a state of sin. We don't have the innate ability to have this inner light to just kind of figure things out. We are born as sinners, and we need to be regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit in order to understand truth. And one of the interesting things about the mystics, about the Quakers, if you will, is that it was almost quasi-Gnosticism. Now, what is Gnosticism? You, you probably know by now because of a lot of the, the papers and projects you've done in the reading. Gnosticism is this idea that matter is evil. There's this secret knowledge, this inner light that you can attain, and, and then matter is evil. It's all about the spiritual. And so what they did was they did not like the celebration of the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine, physical elements, or baptism, physically being baptized in the water because it was too physical. It would draw attention away from the spiritual. And so they were abandoning even celebrating the sacraments or the ordinances, uh, which is a huge deal uh, to a more of a spiritual, privatized type of approach, a more um, me and Jesus over in a corner, a a lot of um, skepticism with organized church. 
And really the Quakers, this mystical movement of the Quakers, did not really have a worldwide impact. Um, it, was, it, was, it, it was more individualistic. It just never really caught on. Um, it was a reaction to the scientific and philosophical approach of rationalism. Uh, we don't like the rational approach of, of everything being reason. And, the, and it was also a reaction to the cold dogmatism of the Reformation. We don't like the creeds and, the, and, the, and all these confessions and so much focus on, on doctrine. It's just more about the personal inner transformation. Now, that sounds very similar to what you see in a lot of mystical um, situations in our in our culture today. I mean, we're still somewhat influenced by Gnosticism today. Uh, the Quaker, uh, you know, not a lot of Quakers, but this whole idea that we don't have to have pastors, we don't have to have church, we don't have to have an order of worship or hymns or celebrate the ordinances of Lord's Supper or baptism. We don't need any of those trappings. We can just go off into a mountain or go off to the beach and just be by ourselves, and somehow we have this inner light to commune with God. Now, it doesn't mean that you can't commune with God out at the beach or you can't commune with God in the mountains, but it's this whole idea that you've removed yourself from the power of the Scriptures, you've removed yourself from the authority of the church. So the first reaction was rationalism. The second reaction was mysticism or, or spiritualism. But there's a third one, um, pietism. Now, within pietism... It's a little larger category here. There, there's three main streams of, of what I would consider the pietistic movement. First, there's the German pietism. Number two, there's um, John Wesley's pietism that gave birth to Methodism. And then there's the Great Awakening in America under the preaching of Jonathan Edwards, which is more of a Calvinistic pietism. And so you have these Lutheran pietism, Methodist pietism, and Calvinistic pietism. And let's just stop and talk about the word pietism, piety. Uh, piety really focuses on holiness, the conduct of your life, having a tra- changed and transformed life as a result of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Now let's look at these three streams. The, the first stream is German pietism. Uh, German pietism, uh, Philip Jacob Spinner. Uh, 1635 to 1705, he's been called the father of German pietism. And he published the Pia Desideria, uh, Pious Longings was the title of it, in 1675. It, it, this became the foundational charter for pietism. Now, one of the strengths of German pietism was really its, its grasp of Scripture as foundational. And one of the interesting things about this pious longings or this Pia Desideria work that that Spinner published was that he really outlined the whole idea of small group Bible studies. Now, he didn't call it small group Bible studies, but it was kind of an ancestor to what we would have today as a Sunday school class or of a small group Bible study where you would gather together as a smaller group, not in a large group setting with a pastor preaching, but in a smaller group where you would do small group Bible study. And so he was kind of the pioneer of that, of that movement because they believed that the word transformed. The word needed to be taught. It, more, it needed to be preached, yes, in the corporate worship gatherings, but you also needed to gather into smaller groups and to learn the scriptures. Now, a name that you need to remember is Count Zinzendorf. Uh, he was influenced by Spinner. Spinner was his godfather. And Count Zinzendorf was really instrumental in the formation of the Moravian movement. Uh, the Moravians were a group of Hussites. They were forced to leave Moravia because of persecution. And since Count Zinzendorf was wealthy and had a lot of land and a large estate, he allowed them to take exile or or asylum in his estate. And they really started to impact him. And so Count Zinzendorf and these Moravians began to get passionate for Christ. And there was actually um, a, a revival, a Moravian revival under this time, where they launched a lot of missionaries to go out into the world to spread the gospel. So one of the, one of the great things about Count Zinzendorf and the Moravian movement was their missionary zeal. Uh, they, they, they birthed this missionary movement, and what we see was that it had a really positive impact on global evangelism. But one of the things that it affected is these missionaries would go all over the world. And there was one such man that encountered these Moravian missionaries And it changed his life forever and really changed the history of the church in a great and powerful way. And that man is John Wesley. So even German pietism with Count Zinzendorf, even though it didn't directly affect 
England, it indirectly brought John Wesley on a journey to where Methodism was born in England. So let's talk about John Wesley. John Wesley from England was a young Anglican preacher. Um, He was unsaved. He was not a believer, but yet he was, quote-unquote, sent on a mission trip, if you will, to go to the United States, to the state of Georgia, the colony of Georgia at that time, to do mission work among the Indians. And he was very um, depressed on his way out there because he was just conflicted in his soul because he knew deep down in his heart he wasn't saved. But on the boat trip, on the, on the ship over, he was on the boat with a group of Moravians, these missionaries, and he began to see something very unique in them and, and very different in them, and they, they had somewhat of an influence upon him. And so he goes to Georgia and has a miserable time and then on his way back to, to, to England, and he gets back, you can hear in his journal, and his memoirs, uh, he would say something like, I went to America to convert the heathen, knowing that I myself was not converted. He knew deep in his heart that he wasn't saved. So he gets back to England, and after having this very depressing, defeating uh, time doing mission work, is, is it not a Christian, thinking he was, but yet he had this experience with Moravians, he wasn't sure of his salvation, so he decided to, to look up some of those Moravian people in London. So he reconnected with the Moravians. And in 1738, he attends a Bible study at Aldersgate. And this was, a, this was the, the, the watershed moment in John Wesley's life. As he goes to this Bible study, he really didn't want to go. He went reluctantly. But as he's in this Bible study, one of the Moravians it was reading Luther, Martin Luther's preface, just the preface to the book of Romans. Martin Luther wrote a commentary on Romans, and, and they weren't even getting to that. They were just reading Martin Luther's preface. And then he, these are the words of Wesley. He said about a quarter of the way through the reading, this is what he said, quote, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. That was John Wesley's salvation experience. That was when God opened his eyes to the truth of his condition, that he was not saved, and he cried out for salvation, and God saved him through the grace of Christ. And what ensued were these holy clubs where Wesley would train men to grow in Christ, to be disciplined, to do Bible study, to learn the scriptures. And and he really didn't want to start a new denomination. And he was an Anglican, an Anglican pastor. And people began to mock these holy clubs and, and they got the nickname Methodists. It wasn't like Charles, or John and Charles Wesley said, hey, let's call ourselves Methodists. That was the, the nickname that their detractors gave to them. But eventually they took that name as a badge of honor and began calling themselves Methodists. And Wesley was known as a relentless preacher. He was a circuit rider. He would travel all over England and America on horseback, preaching, especially out in the open, to the common man. And in America, it had a huge impact because during this time, there was the expansion moving west. And, and when we think of west back at that time, don't think of California. Think more like uh, Kentucky and Illinois and Tennessee and Missouri, places like that. It's moving from New England west on the frontier. And a lot of these people out on the frontier area, they didn't have a lot of links to the denominations back east, a lot of these were common people. They weren't highly educated, but they, they were ready for, for a revival to spread through. And so um, this was spearheaded by Francis Asbury. Uh, Francis Asbury was sent to America in 1771 by John Wesley to preach. And so Methodism grew exponentially during that time, especially in America on the frontier due to Wesley's influence, Asbury's influence, and his brother Charles Wesley. Charles Wesley was a prolific hymn writer, wrote a lot, a lot of hymns. I believe he's probably written one of the richest hymns of all time. I don't know if you've heard the hymn, And Can It Be? Um, It was originally titled Free Grace, but let me read to you the words, And Can It Be? Just a powerful hymn that that really um, encapsulates Charles Wesley's salvation experience. 
Um, he was impacted by the Moravians as well. And, and when he got saved and when his eyes were open and when he was saved by sovereign grace and when God caused him to be born again, uh, Charles Wesley wrote this hymn as a way of praising God for his free grace. So here's And Can It Be. I won't read all of the stanzas, but just enough to give you an idea of the, of the rich hymnity of Charles Wesley. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain. For me who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that that my God shouldst die for me? Amazing love, how can it be that that my God shouldst die for me? He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptying himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all immense and free, for oh my God, it found out me. Tis mercy all immense and free, for oh my God, it found out me. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickering ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love, how can it be that that my God should die for me. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus in all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine, bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Powerful hymn that speaks about grace and regeneration and salvation and all the things that, 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 that accompany me. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Now, here's just an interesting side note. And, and just in the conversation that we're having here, especially when you think about the five solas of the Protestant Reformation, one of those being faith alone. And this whole idea, especially from Luther and from Calvin, of imputed righteousness. Now, the whole idea of justification by faith alone that the Protestant reformers argued is that not only are our sins pardoned, not only are our sins forgiven and taken away, but also the righteousness of Christ is also credited to us. It's imputed to us. It's reckoned to us. Now, interestingly, John Wesley did not share that view. He did not share the view of Luther and Calvin's idea of imputed righteousness. He published a sermon in 1746 called Justification by Faith, where he says that the idea of imputed righteousness of Christ is morally and theologically untenable. He sees it simply as mere pardon and forgiveness of sins, but not imputed righteousness coming into us from Christ. John Wesley is a, is a formidable great, wonderful um, person in church history. It's Just go back and read some of his biographies and, and just look at the, the life that he lived. Um, another profoundly impacting person, especially in America, and this is the third stream of pietism, more the Calvinistic pietism, is Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards. Um, in the early 1700s in New England, if you can imagine, it was a time of partying. Young people were cussing and carousing. Uh, they were engaging in singing crazy um, songs and bar hopping and, and pretty much having sex with whoever they wanted to have. That sounds like our culture now. And in the midst of this period, Jonathan Edwards had the desire to see God move and bring about ultimate transformation. And so Edwards was the father of the first great awakening in america now it's interesting because he was a staunch calvinist but at the same time he believed in the power of the gospel and so he was used by god through his preaching to launch the seven-year period of amazing revival and spiritual awakening in our nation called the first great awakening something interesting about jonathan edwards how many of you can say that you did this? He began to study Latin at the age of six, and then he was fluent in Latin, and then he learned Greek and Hebrew by the time he was 13. So as a 13-year-old boy, he knew Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. At 13, he entered Yale College. And, and as a little 13-year-old boy in college at Yale, think about this, he was engrossed in John Locke's Essays Concerning Human Understanding. So he began to, to read the philosophers. And so even as a young boy, 
he would have a pen in his hand, not for the purpose of copying the thoughts of others, but for writing down his own thoughts. He was, think about this, he was fluent in Greek, Hebrew, and Latin, and reading the philosophers at the age of 13. Now, most 13-year-olds today that would do that, we would probably call them a nerd. We're, we're not really sure, but this is an amazing man. Now, he graduated number one from his class at the age of 17 from Yale. Then in 1772, uh, he was licensed to preach as a, as a Scottish Presbyterian church in New York. He was only there for eight months, but then he became basically associate pastor to his grandfather, Solomon Stoddard, um, at the Congregational Church in Northampton, Massachusetts. So Northampton, Massachusetts is really where Jonathan Edwards spent most of his adult life in ministry. Um, he fell in love with Sarah Pierpont. They were married. They went on to have 11 children. Now, it's interesting to hear about Jonathan Edwards' conversion experience. Uh, we heard John Wesley's where he was going to Aldersgate to a Moravian Bible study, and his heart was strangely warmed when he heard the, the reading of the, of the introductory epistle to Romans commentary. Listen to Jonathan Edwards. This is from his personal narrative. He gives his testimony of saving faith. He says, quote, From my childhood up, my mind had been full of objections against the doctrine of God's sovereignty in choosing whom he would to eternal life and rejecting whom he pleased. It used to appear like a horrible doctrine to me. And there has been a wonderful alteration in my mind in respect to God's sovereignty from that day to this, so that I scarce have ever found so much as rising of an objection against it in the most absolute sense in God's sovereignty, showing mercy to whom he will and hardening whom he will. Absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God, but my first conviction was not so. This is his Calvinism coming through. He's saying, before I objected to this whole idea that God chooses some for salvation and others he leaves to their own devices, but he says, now I've come to the place where I love to ascribe this to God. Absolute sovereignty. Now, the first uh, kind of interesting thing that, that Jonathan Edwards wrote were these resolutions. He wrote 70 resolutions in 1722 and 1723. Uh, things like, uh, number four, resolve to never do anything, whether in soul or body, less or more, but what tends to the glory of God. And so these were personal resolutions that he had for his life in that pietistic stream, if you will, uh, affecting his behavior before Christ, the resolutions. Now, his grandfather died in 1727, um, and he became the pastor of the church in Northampton. And here's the first big struggle as pastor. It was, it was really over the issue of the Lord's Supper and his grandfather's leadership. Um, his grandfather viewed the Lord's Supper as being open to anybody that wanted to take it. Um, it was open to non-believers. But Jonathan Edwards, we would call that open communion. Uh, Edwards became very uneasy with this because he thought it compromised the membership of the church and that maybe a non-Christian might take it. So he really... Um, believed in what we call closed communion. And so this was the first struggle in his church, having to, to take a stand on a theological issue that, is, that was different from what his grandfather was. And as, and as a young pastor, he had to make that stand. But here's the big date. In 1735, the Great Awakening broke out. And you'd think of all sermons, what would be the sermon that would, that would maybe cause the Great Awakening? Well, it was a sermon on justification by faith. Again, going back to those solas, it's amazing how when God births a reformation or a revival, it always centers around faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone. And so this was simply a message, a series of sermons on justification by faith. And so revival broke out. And then what happened was, because revival broke out, there were um, naysayers, especially back in Boston, who were saying, what's this crazy stuff that's going on up in Northampton? And so he had to defend himself he had to defend the revival that God was doing by writing a faithful narrative of the surprising work of God. And so he wrote a letter to Thomas Prince of Boston defending the revival. And he says this, There's been a great alteration among the youth of the town with respect to revelry, frolicking, profane and licentious conversation, and lewd songs. And there has also been a great alteration among both young and old with regard to tavern haunting, I suppose the town has been in no measure so free of vice in these respects for any longer time for 60 years as it has been in these past nine years. Basically, what he's saying is the proof's in the pudding. 
True revival means there's true societal change. There's true transformation. There is piety. They're not going to the bars. They're not listening to profane music. They're not bar hopping and carousing. There is an absolute change in the culture because of the gospel. And so, especially among the children and the youth. And so, basically, he had to defend himself. And so, one of the most famous things that Jonathan Edwards wrote, and if you ever sit down and try to read this, it takes you almost three days to read one page, but it's the treatise concerning the religious affections. This is his magnum opus, I believe, the treatise concerning religious affections. This really, his argument of what really constitutes true revival. What, what is true revival? And he says, really, the first objective evidence of true revival is an acute awareness of sin and hell and an overwhelming sense of God's perfect love for the sinner. Salvation's not, what will I get out of it? But it's a humble gratitude that God would even save me. It's an overwhelming sense of your sin and the love of Christ. And that true revival brings about obedience to zealously do the good works of Christ and to expect persecution for Christ. Again, that that piety, that Calvinistic piety. George Whitfield, the famous evangelist from Britain who was actually a friend of John and Charles Wesley, visited him as well. You're probably very familiar with Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Um, It's been mischaracterized. If you read the entire sermon, at the very end, Jonathan Edwards becomes very loving and appealing for people to trust Christ, to flee to Christ. Now, one thing happened towards the end of his tenure at the church in Northampton. And it had to do with his leadership. Um, He kept trying to reform things, and especially related to the Lord's Supper. And sadly... He battled his church, and they, they voted him out in 1750. He was asked to leave by vote. He had been there. Think about this. You'd been the pastor of a church that experienced nine years of revival called the First Great Awakening, and then your church basically votes you out. And so towards the end of his life, um, he has a new life. He, he becomes really a missionary to the Indians. He lives on the frontier in Stockbridge, and that's where he did a lot of his prolific writing and his treatises. And so, really, a lot of the main purposes of his writings was to combat the whole idea of Arminianism. He was a Calvinist, so a lot of his writing was to talk about the sovereignty of God. So, as a Calvinist, he wrote Freedom of the Will, Original Sin, The End for Which God Created the World, The Nature of Virtue, some of these major philosophical... As a matter of fact... If you look at American history, most um, theologians, most scholars, most philosophers would agree that Jonathan Edwards is the greatest mind that America has ever produced as far as just the brilliance of him. Now, he was a student of John Locke, so he was a product of the Enlightenment. So he really um, is a paradox here because he's a masterful philosopher He's a logical writer. He can eloquently and rationally defend Christianity in very complicated writings while at the same time being a staunch Calvinist and a fiery preacher. And so towards the end of his life in 1758, he became president of Princeton College. And then he died of smallpox just a few months later. A great impact on American pietism as well as Jonathan, or Jonathan Edwards, the Calvinistic pietism, John and Charles Wesley, a more Arminian Methodist pietism, and then you have the German or the Lutheran pietism. So that's the third big issue. So we've got the first reaction to the Protestant Reformation is rationalism. Secondly, you've got spiritualism or mysticism. Thirdly, you've got pietism, which in my view is, is, the, is, is not necessarily a reaction. I think it's an extension. I, I think the pietism, in my, in my estimation, was a good thing. There were good things that came out of pietism. Probably not so much out of rationalism, in my opinion, or mysticism. And especially the fourth one we're going to look at, liberalism. Liberalism is the fourth big reaction uh, under this period of the Enlightenment. Uh, two quantum shifts in world history happened in the 1800s. They, these affected world history, and they affected church history, and we are products of those today. 
1848, Karl Marx published Communist Manifesto. In 1859, Charles Darwin's Origin of Species. Two major works that have had quantum shifts in how the world views reality. So this whole period of the 1800s is influenced by these two works and also the things, the, the, the stream of Christianity is beginning to, taint, to change. Um, you have Immanuel Kant, uh, one of the greatest philosophers of all times. He was more in the 1700s, but really he sets up the 1800s. He'd been a firm believer in rationalism until he was awakened, quote-unquote, from his dogmatic slumber by reading Hume. And so he didn't accept the view of Descartes. He didn't accept the view of empiricism. He proposed a radical new alternative to both of these. So in 1781, he published the Critique of Pure Reason. And in this, he argued there is no such thing as innate ideas. There are fundamental structures of the mind And within those structures, we place whatever data the senses provide. Now, here's the thing that was radical about Kant. Here's how Immanuel Kant has influenced where we are today. He argued, basically, there is no such thing as purely objective knowledge. He says the rationality of Descartes, of Hume, of the deists, it was nothing more than an illusion. So you have the the seeds here being planted of there is no such thing as objective knowledge. There's no such thing as objective truth. There's no such thing as absolute truth. He was not a big fan of the ontological arguments put forth by Anselm, later on by Descartes, others for the existence of God. Remember, their argument is if you can think that God is there, He must be there because he gave the ability to think that in the first place. And if you can think as far back to whoever was the prime mover, the first among anything, think as far back and then there you have God. And so Immanuel Cotton says, just because you think about it or just because you conceive God doesn't necessarily mean that God exists. It could just be that you're thinking that. And so he sets up this whole idea to kind of question that. And so... He sets up the big issues of the 1800s where theologians and philosophers are going to have to attempt to wrestle with the relationship between faith and reason. So Immanuel Kant is the setup in the 1700s to what we find in the 1800s. And the first big figure in the 1800s is Friedrich Schleiermacher. Try to say that fast. Friedrich Schleiermacher. Um, He was raised Reformed, but he was also influenced by Pietism of the Moravians, but he was heavily influenced by the Romantic movement, the Romanticism. And he, he argued this, religion's neither grounded in practical or moral reason, but really it comes in, in, in what he called feeling or feelings. Um, his famous work, The Christian Faith, uh, he shows that this idea of feeling, he's not, when he says feelings, it's not the kind of way we look at it. It's not like sentimentality. It's not a passing emotion or or some type of sudden experience, but what he says, it's a profound awareness of the existence of God. It's this awareness of God. Now, this is where we start getting a little slippery. We start moving away from absolute truth. We start moving away from Scripture alone to this idea that if we sense God, if we feel God, if we're aware of God, then that defines truth. And another thing that he also did was he gave rise to this idea that the community determines truth based upon feeling. He's opening the door to subjectivism. He also denied miracles. Um, You you go back and read some of his writings, and he didn't believe the Genesis account and other things. And he said those things really don't matter. What's really mattered is, is your awareness of God and how that affects the community of faith's awareness of God. And so he's famously been known as the father of liberalism, Friedrich Schleiermacher. Now, G.W.F. Hegel, 1770-1831, was another philosopher. I don't know if you've heard of Hegelian philosophy or Hegel. He's famous for his process of reasoning. Here's what he said. He says, first of all, we pose a thesis. So so we come up with a thesis. And then we need to test that thesis by posing an antithesis. 
And then we need to kind of come to a, 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 um, a synthesis between the two. And when we do that, that's reason. So you've got your thesis, you've got an antithesis or antithesis, but, but you really don't want to deal with both of those because there's no absolutes. You need to synthesize those two together, and that's what you come up with. Now, he did say that Christianity was an absolute religion, but his system of thought sets the stage for liberalism. See, see what he does here? He doesn't start with absolute truth. What he does is he starts with competing thoughts, and he says... These thoughts may be right, they may be wrong, but the main thing to do is to synthesize them, to to bring them together to make up what you believe. That opens the door for liberalism, for syncretism, for um, all types of things. And so you see the seeds of what our culture today breathes in post-modernity coming from these fathers of of modern-day liberalism, Friedrich Schleiermacher. And then you have another interesting character during this time, Soren Kierkegaard. 1813 to 1855. Uh, He was a Danish Lutheran. He wrestled with the ideas of Immanuel Kant, of Hegel. And so here's what his argument was. He says, Christianity is not based upon reason. It's not something you just reason. So so number one, it's not a a reason thing. So he goes back to the rationalist, the empiricist. But he says it's also not based upon a feeling like Schleiermacher. And then he also says it's, it's, it's not just a, a synthesis of good ideas like Hegel. He argues for it being based upon faith. Faith in God whose revelation comes to us in the scriptures and in Jesus Christ. So out of all of these Enlightenment guys, Soren Kierkegaard was probably the most conservative and probably the most closer in line with Orthodox theology. And he believed that Christianity had been watered down in his day. There were too many nominal Christians, Christians in name. Uh, they, were just, they just signed a card. They were just a member of a church, but there was no life transformation. And if you were truly to be a Christian, you had to count the cost for your Christian faith, and you had to be willing to pay that. And he said, you can, you can be a Christian by name, but not truly be a Christian. So he rejected this Hegelian philosophy, and really, he, he's called the father or the founder of existentialism. Now, we need to be c- c- careful with that term, because... When you think about existentialism, the, where, where his followers carried it is not where he was at. So, so modern day or, or late uh, or, mid-19th century, or mid-20th century existentialism is not the existentialism that Kierkegaard would espouse. Basically what he said is that the Christian life is a life of experience, a life of existence. It's a life of faith, a life of risk, a life of, of tragedy. It's not so much a life of um, formalized dog, dogma. But it's this whole idea of living the Christian life, experiencing the Christian life, existing as a Christian in the world as a follower of Christ. And so his idea was that you need to be able to take that risk to to experience the Christian life of faith. And so when we think about this liberalism, this movement of the 1800s, really paved the way for new discussions and theories that we'll find in the early 20th century. We'll discuss that in the next lecture. But, but you can see how this period in church history, from, from the Thirty Years' War ending to about the end of the 1800s, you have this period of enlightenment where major, major changes are happening in church history to launch us into, basically from the 1900s to the, to the modern age. And so what I want us to do is just a quick review in the, in the time that we have left. I want us to do a quick overview of church history up to this point. So in the early ages, from about 4 BC, uh, the birth of Jesus, to 313, which we know as the Edict of Milan, under Constantine, the, the, the Christian faith was a period of definition, trying to define it. It's the writing of the, of the Bible. It's the, end, the, the life of Christ, the end of the apostles, the church in Acts. You have those early, the early church. It's, it's a time of persecution, a time of apologetics. You've got this period of, of, of definition, defining Christianity. And then in 313 BC, or 313 AD, sorry about that, with the Edict of Milan, you have a new, a new period. You have a period of recognition. 
the church is now recognized. The church is now formalized. There's no more persecution. And so now you have the ecumenical councils. Now you have the idea where, where the church is being recognized as a, as a valid expression of, of religion in the world. And that goes up till about, well, 410 to 476 with the fall of Rome in that period. But then from 476, the fall of Rome, to 1054, you've got this major transformation, this, this major shift in locus, if you will. That was one of your projects, one of your papers. The locus of authority changed. Before it was the local bishops. Before it was the local churches. It was, each church was, was localized, autonomous. But then it shifted to the rise of the papacy. One man ruling from Rome and a state church. And so from 476 to 1054, you have the rise and ascendancy of the papacy. But then we know what happens in 1054. We have the Great Schism. The church splits into the Eastern Orthodox Church in the East and then the Western Church, the Roman Catholic Church. And so the church is split in half. And so from 1054 to 1303... You have the the height of the papacy, this period of exaltation where the papacy reaches its most powerful, most expansive. But then in 1303, when Boniface is humiliated, you see the papacy's decline. It's not at the height at where it was. And then from 1303 to 1453, you have this period of fragmentation. You've got the rise of nationalism. You've got the dawn of the Reformation. You've got a period of unrest leading up to the Protestant Reformation. In 1453, what happens? The fall of Constantinople in the east. And then the rise of the Protestant Reformation, 1517, where Martin Luther posts his 95 Thesis. And then you really, from about 1517 to 1618, that that 100 years of the Protestant Reformation, you have the 30 Years' War in 1618. And then from 1618 to what we've seen in this lecture today with the rise of orthodoxies and the confessions and the tightening of denominational boundaries you see this reaction to this form of of rationalism uh, this form of spiritualism pietism liberalism and really you can go probably at 1804 there's some debate 1804 was Immanuel Kant's death is 1804 the 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 beginning of the modern age was among the origin of species, the beginning of the modern age. We can debate about that, but there was obviously a quantum shift in the mid-1800s of how the world viewed reality, and this ultimately affected the church. And so that launches us into the stage setting up for the early 1900s to where we are today, 113 years later. So that concludes our session on the Enlightenment.